Amen. Let's continue that prayer. Father God, you are our good Father. And so we can come to you with our requests, with our petitions. God, we lift up Kate Zabel as she undergoes treatment for lung cancer. Bring about healing. Provide comfort and peace of mind. God, we pray for Jen Haino as she was admitted to the hospital last night. God, help doctors discern the problem as she struggles to just communicate clearly. We continue to pray for Lorna's son, Greg. We pray for Lorna and her family as they rotate visiting him in the hospital. Heal him. Give doctors solutions that will work with current medications. Be with Barry and Dorothy Norris. Be their comforter, their rest. Be with Barry Mansfield. Help him to rest in your love and in your peace. Lift up Chris and Pauline Bryan. Thank you for your steadfast love and your unfailing mercies. Bring healing and restoration. God, we're saddened but rejoicing along with Carl and Brenda Linkletter at the news of Carl's father's passing. God, along with him, we, we rejoice that he no longer suffers from dementia, but is instead in your presence, seeing things clearly. God, we give thanks for Marilee York's granddaughter, Eden, and her quick recovery from surgery, for tonsil and adenoid removal, and having tubes placed in her ears. Thank you that Marilee was able to be there to support her family during this time. And God, we're thankful for the gift of new life. As Sharon McMillan celebrates the birth of a new great-granddaughter, Emerson Faith, born last Sunday. We thank you that everyone is doing well. And God, we lift up all the unspoken prayers that, that you know, Father. We trust you to continue to work all for good. We trust you, God, to bring your kingdom here. God, on today, National Indigenous Peoples Day, we acknowledge the diverse and abundant gifts of Canada's indigenous peoples. We recognize that their knowledge and wisdom have benefited generations past and present, and this blessing will continue for generations to come. We remember the many who are committed to the healing of family, community, and nations. And God, we confess our own failures to honor this heritage. Give us the courage to repent and to listen. God, give us the courage to, to mean the words we sing when we ask that you would set free captive hearts, that we long to see the sick and poor at peace. God, this is a, a time when we need to listen. And to that end, we will pray a prayer of listening written by Walter Brueggemann. You are the voice that we can scarcely hear because you speak to us about dying and suffering. And we are impacted by so many voices that have to do with power and competence and success. We do know that you are the voice that gives life, that you are the voice that opens futures to people who are hopeless. God, we are part of a hopeless people because the other voices eat at our hearts and we are immobilized and we become deaf. So we pray for new ears. We pray that your, vi- your voice may be more audible to us, that we may be able to sort out the death-giving from the life-giving voices among us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, through whom you have spoken in such inscrutable ways. Amen. All right, well, at this point of the service, usually, you know, we shake hands and hug, and we don't do that right now, um, but feel free to look around and, one, you know, wave to each other, but also look around and see who's not here, 
who you usually reach out to and, and make a mental note to, to do that, to reach out to somebody. Um, and we're going to go ahead and show our video. Um, it's got Dave and Mary and Cameron on there, so we'll say hey to them and let them say hey to you. And yeah, then we'll have our, our sermon. everybody coming out on Sundays. We're still being seniors and staying home according to the advice we received from our knowledgeable daughter. And we miss you all and we look forward to getting back together and you're always welcome to individually socially distance drop by our yard at the lake if you want to say hi. I'll take a look at this. <laughs> hi everybody. We do miss you. And uh, I guess... One of the bonuses for us has been having our daughter here. She works from home and she puts in her seven and a half hour, eight hours or whatever it is every day. But it's great having her here living with us. And I'm working on a little project repairing the dock. And uh, so that's what's keeping me busy right now. So anyway, we look forward to getting together soon and uh, do feel free if you want to call and drop by. That would be great. Bye-bye. Good morning. morning. Uh, You can say it. You have to say it loud when there's only 35 or so of you. Good morning. All right. Did anybody else have a spiritual experience like me? I, I, I've always, my wife says she's always wanted those warm fuzzies. And when I was singing with this on, boy, it's, it gets really warm, right? I thought I was breathing my own carbon monoxide there, I, or di- dioxide. I thought I'm going to have a, a, a moment, but I made it. I survived. We are in Revelation chapter 17 uh, this morning, 17, 18, and 19. And I'm, I didn't ask somebody to read the text because it's really long, and I'm going to read most of it as we go through the sermon. It is really quite a text. Uh, lots of images. Have you ever noticed that about Revelation? It, it's a fasten your seatbelt kind of book. And I feel like a lot of what we do as, as I preach through Revelation is I'm trying to teach. Uh, I see teaching and preaching as very different things. But I'm trying to get you an understanding of the different images and what they mean. Uh, there's a, so many things in the text today. Um, that we're, we're going to kind of take a broad, big picture look at the text. There's a lot in there that I just don't have time to go into. But the focus here, as we come toward the end, we've got this week and two more weeks, and then we're on to something else. Um, but along the way, all throughout the book of Revelation, I hope what you're seeing is a line is being drawn between two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the beast, the way of the world, uh, the, the way of the dragon, Satan, and the way he would have people live life, and the kingdom of the slain lamb. And we've seen the motivations under both. We've seen the methods of both. And we've also seen last week that the beast loses, right? That, that the, everybody shows up to, to fight and the, the, the king arrives and declares it's finished and it's all done. And it's good news because as we live watching the saints, the, the followers of the lamb, it seems like they keep dying. And, and the, the way that they do things doesn't seem like a victorious way, but, but what we see today in these two and a half chapters uh, is focuses on the fall, the ultimate fall of Babylon, this kingdom of the world, and, and it's set up really 
as, as a text of comparison and contrast with chapter 21 and 22, which are the coming of the new heaven, new earth, the kingdom of the Lamb. And so I, just really quickly, so that you can see this, I want to show you the way that, that chapter 17, 18, and 19 parallels with chapter 21 and 22. We'll put it up on the screen here. I'm going to breeze through it really quickly. But I want you to see that the way the text is ending is, again, comparing and contrasting the fall of the kingdom of Babylon, of the dragon, and the rise of the kingdom of the slain lamb, the new Jerusalem. So as you look at the text, and they'll be up here, we're not, I'm not going to go into it, but I want you to see it. It kind of sets the context for it. Revelation 17.3, which is our, in our text today, and he carried me away uh, in the spirit into a wilderness. And then in Revelation 21.10, which is the new Jerusalem part, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. There's this echo of the same phrases that show there's a comparison and contrast. Again, in Revelation 17.1, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. And Revelation 21.9, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Once again, the same phrasing for part of it in Greek to show you the contrast. Revelation 17.1, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Revelation 21, 9, and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. It's, it's an echo. We're seeing in 17, 18, 19, the fall of the kingdom. And in 21 and 22, we're going to see the establishment of the eternal kingdom of the Lamb. And the, the last comparison is at the end of the vision of Babylon's fall in Revelation 19, 10. It says, this is John, at this I fell at his, the angel's feet, to worship him. And he said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And at the end of the vision of the new Jerusalem, Revelation 22, 8 and 9, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book worship God. So you can see the parallels. The whole book is, is speaking to the followers of the Lamb and drawing the contrast between the, the people who don't follow the Lamb, the people who follow the ways of the world. And, and now he's, as he's moving to the end, he's showing as the kingdom of the, the dragon falls, he's going to show you in two weeks in the text we look at the, the, the new heaven and the new earth. Now, this section that we look, we're looking at, I think, is one of the most difficult to understand. There's a lot of Five kings replaced by one king and ten horns, and there's a ton. And so, like I say, I'm, I'm going to back up. I'm not going to give you an answer to every image. I know them all, obviously. Just kidding. I, I can't give you an answer to every image. It's, it's theories that people espouse. But there's two, there, there's a, a contrast. Just like he's taking the, the fall of the kingdom of Babylon, the fall of the kingdom of the dragon, and the rise of the kingdom of the slain lamb, uh, it's a tale of two things. And this, the first thing it focuses on in our text is a tale of two women. And these women are striking. Their descriptions can be very, or at least the first one, can be very unsettling. And John uses some pretty graphic language. Uh, if you were fluent in, in Koine Greek and the Greek of the New Testament, uh, you would realize that this text does not have a G rating. It's going to get bumpy a bit here for a few minutes, and I don't want you to say that I didn't warn you. And for all you parents of small children, I think Dustin and Jen are okay. You're probably all right with the discussions. But some of you may have interesting lunch conversation today. And I want to remind you, all I'm really doing is reading the Bible to your children. So if you don't want me to read the Bible to your children, that's all right. But th there's some strong language here. The first woman that we see is in chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. 
One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And with her, the kings of the earth committed adulteries, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And this title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. I, th- this first woman that we see is, is, well, you've heard her called probably in King James, the great harlot of Babylon. I, I'm calling her the prostitute of the beast. Uh, it's a woman riding a beast. It's the same beast that we saw in Revelation 13 coming out of the sea. It was the one that was sent by the dragon. But this woman is clothed in very flashy clothing. Notice she's holding a cup, not a scepter. It's showing that she's not a king. She's not a ruler. She's holding a cup and it's full of the filth of her adulteries. Now we see in verse six that this is the blood of the saints. That's what she's drinking, that she's drunk with the blood of the saints. And there's this name written on her, uh, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes. In other words, not only is she this type of person, but she's giving birth to more of this same type of thing. It's not a really pretty picture, just the fact that it describes her as drunk on the blood of the saints. I mean, I've got some friends who uh, are alcoholics, recovering alcoholics, and I've listened to them talk about how hard it gets sometimes to fight the compulsion for another drink. They just, their whole body craves it. And when you think she is drunk on the blood, this, this woman, what she symbolizes is addicted to the death and destruction of those who follow the Lamb. She's addicted to the death of Christ's followers. That's a real warm fuzzy right there, isn't it? This is not the kind of woman that we in the church want to have around. And we're going to come back to her, but I I want you to see that in contrast to her, in chapter 19, John brings us to the bride of the Lamb. Turn over to chapter 19, and we'll read the first nine verses of Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both small and great. And then you hear what the excitement's about. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. 
Now, this very idea of a bride is one we can all see would be in great contrast to that first woman. One of the perks of my job doing weddings is I get to stand by the groom when the, the bride walks in the door, okay? And I, I get to, everybody's always turned to look at the bride. Well, I can see her already, but I get to watch the groom. And, and grooms light up. They do. And, and people are excited. When the bride comes in the door, everybody's excited. There's, full, there's joy. There's laughter. There's, there's, it's this beautiful moment when the bride comes in. See, all, all this prostitute of Babylon brings is fear and disgust and dread. Not the stuff that you want to hear about in Sunday school. It's, it's, it's nightmares. These two women placed side by side show the contrast And in the course of our text, they yield some powerful imagery and implications. If you go back to chapter 18, the first eight verses of chapter 18, and this is the part where the sermon loses the G rating, and I'll I'll try to maintain that while explaining to you why it does. Uh, Revelation 18, 1 to 8, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give, her, give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she's done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day... Her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Now I'll proceed as delicately as I can and still do justice to what the Greek is actually saying here. Remember the the name of the prostitute, Babylon, the mother of prostitutes. You become a mother by giving birth, right? And the prostitute is giving birth to other prostitutes to the same type of thing because she's, she's gotten pregnant. Well, who is the father? And it says those who live by the way of the beast. Those who reject Jesus. It says in 18, 4 and 5. Um, well, in, in, in uh, 3, the kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And then in verse 4 and 5, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. Now, I, I can't literally translate this text because the language is too provocative. The closest I can come is saying he's... He's saying to the people, get out of her bed. Because you see, what happens when you embrace this kingdom, when you embrace the way of the dragon and the way of the beast, when you start living that way, all you do is reproduce more and more and more of the same. And we know that. We know that when we attack evil with evil, it multiplies. It, 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 it just grows exponentially. And, and the point is, if you follow her way, if you're going to go this way, all it's going to do is give birth to more and more of the same. And we're all going to end up suffering for it. It says in verse 5, For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. The more that we give into this, the more that we surrender to the way of the beast, the more we multiply those types of issues in our world. See, John shows us these two female images on opposite ends of the spectrum, 
And then he moves on to another contrast because he, he says these aren't just women. It's also a tale of two cities or a tale of two ways of living. See, the idea of a city is, is central to the aspect. When we think of society, we think in terms of cities. Cities represent our culture. Um, they have a culture of their own. We all know as Canadians that Vancouver is one way and Toronto is another way, right? Everybody realizes those two cities have a very different culture, a very different ethos. These cities have something about them. And if you want to, when I first started studying this passage, I was living in a city called Birmingham, Alabama, which is a very bit different from Vancouver and Toronto both. Cities have different cultures. They have a different way about them, an underlying way of thinking. And John says there's two cities as well. These two women represent two cities. First of all, Babylon, the empire of the beast. In in chapter 17, verse 18, it's talking about this first prostitute, and it says, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the king's of the earth. Now, is he talking about one specific city? She's, she's the city. Well, I, I don't think so. And a lot has been, as people read this chapter, especially 17, just look at this for a minute. Well, I, I debated going here, but look at verses 9 to 14 of chapter 17. <laughs> this calls for a mind with wisdom. No kidding. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They have, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers." How many kings were mentioned in there? There's five, and there's seven, and there's eight, and there's ten, and there's... It's a complicated thing, but what I'm I'm using that to say, I don't think she's talking about one city. John's talking about one city here. I think he's talking about this sense of Babylon as a kingdom, as as an ethos, as a way that people live their life. Some people have looked at those kings and said, well, they're kings of Rome, and some of them say they're modern-day powers, and they match up the countries. Maybe that's all true, but I think the point isn't exactly who it matches up with. The point is this whole kingdom of Babylon, this city, this, this empire of the beast has a way of functioning. John is talking more symbolically than literally. And I mean, even if you read about the, the symbolism of the woman, uh, she's sitting on a beast with 10 horns and seven heads. And then in 17.1, it says she's sitting on many waters, which are, verse 15 tells us the waters are people's, multitudes, nations, and languages. But then in verse 3, she's sitting on the beast. And then in verse 9, she's sitting on seven hills. Now, where the heck is that woman sitting? Right? It's, it, we've got to stop thinking so literally. This is symbolic to say that this type of ethos and culture is in all these places. This culture of Babylon, this empire. It's a culture of power and possessions. Look at chapter 18, verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. 
And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and bodies and souls of men. Interesting that tagged on there at the end. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. And when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? And they will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she's been brought to ruin. You see, this culture of power and possessions, the kings are weeping because they're losing power. The, the ticket to their power is gone. The merchants and the ship captains who've gotten wealth through the possessions are weeping. You see, Babylon has always been symbolic of these things, of power for us and stuff for us, materialism and possessions. That is, an, is part of this ethos and culture of the kingdom of Babylon. It goes all the way back to Genesis eleven four. Remember the Tower of Babel? They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. See, this culture of the dragon is all about power and stuff, control, making a name for ourselves. That's the kingdom that's falling. And the ones who have power and possessions mourn its loss. See, it, it, it's one of these things that gets us. I, it, I've said that before. You know, money, sometimes money, we don't have money. Money has us. We don't have stuff, but stuff, ha- it gets its hooks in us and we want it. And we begin to follow this other pathway where we, we think that what we possess and having power and control becomes the most important thing. That's the kingdom of the beast. See, as, as we give into this, we actually allow the evils to be multiplied. As we live lives that exploit for power and wealth, we hurt people all over the world. We build our world on a way of living that's contrary to everything God intended. Remember that famous poem, Invictus? It, it ends, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This idea that I am the center. I'm the one in power. It's the kingdom of Babylon. It's the empire, the beast, power, possessions. That's what it's all about. And in stark contrast to this is the city of Zion, the bride of the Lamb. See, the new Jerusalem that we're going to see in a couple weeks in chapter 21, the way of living that the disciples of the Lamb are called to on this side, it seems like failure. I mean, you're, you're laying down your life. You're dying. You're suffering. You're not, you don't have any power. Just like Jesus on the cross seemed like a failure. 
It's a place where people live not just for themselves, but where they lay down their lives for each other. This is what it means to follow the Lamb. It's very different than the one where we take control, where we embrace power and, and possessions and strength. The way of the Lamb is one who offers himself as a sacrifice. It's a culture of sacrificial love. That's why we saw way back in chapter 5. You remember the, the throne room doors thrown open and John sees this throne and all these people singing and elders and angels and beasts and, and one seated on the throne and then there's this scroll that we said is kind of the outpouring of God's plan for humanity with seven seals and the whole earth was searched everywhere and we can't find anybody worthy to open the scroll and John starts to weep. Because he wants this. He wants to know what God has planned for the world. And then it says in chapter 5, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven arms and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, To this weak, slain lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. See, there's a lot of academic mental stuff trying to get these images, right? There's a lot of exp- explanations, but it's, this has to be more than an academic exercise. You have to begin to see that there, what, what it's talking about here are two ways of living. There's, there's the kingdom of, of the dragon, the beast, which, which we're tempted to every day. Power, control, take care of myself, have what I need, and lay down my life and sacrifice. The way of the beast centered on you and your rights. Oh, my rights. Christians talk about our rights all the time. Uh, don't get me started. But yes, you have a right to do all that stuff. But the whole point of Jesus is he laid down his rights for the good of the other. And the, the, the other way is the way of the lamb, offering ourselves up in sacrificial love for others, even when they treat us with evil. See, the cross isn't just a message. It's not just a symbol we have. It's, it's a method. It's a way that we live our lives. No better example. And I've used this example several times. I'm going to use it again because it speaks so powerfully to this. In 2006, you will remember, that was, what, 15 years, 14 years ago, there was a shooting at the West Nickel Mines School in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. Carl, Charles Carl Roberts IV went into that school that morning and he took... Uh, 10 girls hostages between the age of 6 and 13. He shot six of them. He killed five of them before he committed suicide and killed himself. It, you, we remember that on the news, right? Remember that. What was fascinating to me, and it's detailed in a book um, by uh, Craybill, I can't remember his first name, uh, called Amish Grace. You can read about it. It's a fascinating book. It's in our library. But the Amish community did four things. At, at that moment, they had rights, they, they should have taken power, they, they, they deserve things to happen, but this is the four things that they as a community did. Within a couple of days, the elders of the community went to his wife and family at her house and offered forgiveness. We want to forgive you for what your husband did. We want you to know that we don't hold any ill will against you. 
The second thing they did, there's a community. You remember that this was before Go, GoFundMe pages, but these accounts were set up where people could transfer money for the survivor, for the victims, families. And the community decided that what they would do is they would divide all that money. And typically, they don't receive, but they said in this type of situation, it will be helpful for burial costs and everything that we need. So they received that money, but they divided it based on the survivors. Each one had a share, and they gave the shooter's wife, because they said she's a survivor too, they gave her a share of all the money that was given to them. They invited her and her family to attend all the funerals of the girls. They welcomed her to the funeral. And then when her husband's funeral happened, buggy after buggy after buggy from the Amish community pulled up outside the church. How many people do you think went to that funeral? I mean, can you imagine? You want to go to the funeral of the guy who shot five little Amish girls? Well, the entire community showed up. And in his book, uh, Amish Grace, he says, some commentators criticize the quick and complete forgiveness with which the Amish responded. They're arguing that forgiveness is inappropriate when no remorse has been expressed and that such an attitude runs the risk of denying the existence of evil while others were supportive. Several scholars of the Amish life noticed that, quote, letting go of grudges is a deeply rooted value in Amish culture which remembers forgiving martyrs in their past and Jesus himself. They explain that the Amish willingness to forego vengeance does not undo the tragedy or pardon the wrong, but it constitutes the first step toward a future that is more hopeful. And that to me is the way of the Lamb. They had every reason to be angry at this woman and her family. They had every reason to be vengeful. They had every reason at the very minimum just to never want to see her again. But the way of the lamb realized that she was created in the image of God, that she was suffering too, that she was grieving, and they joined with her in their grief. It's a powerful image of the cross. See, we have to begin to lay down our rights and love as Jesus loved us. The only way to heal the tensions in our world today are the way of the lamb. Even though it doesn't look, we feel like we need to take control and fix everything. And it's by sacrificially loving one another. You know, you want to heal the racial tensions in, in our world and in hope, begin to develop relationships with other races that have been maligned, that have been put down. And love them, one on, not, not as a project, but as an, as an individual created by God like you and me. As we begin to do that and sacrifice our lives for each other, Number one, we'll, we'll learn about a culture that we don't know a lot about because we'll be engaged in relationship. I'm getting ahead of myself. The text is also a tale of two results. I'll do this one quick because we're running out of time. Last week, we, we talked about you reap what you sow, and that truth is replayed in this text. These offspring of these two women and the nature of these two cities, they lead somewhere. The, the way of Babylon leads to the implosion of evil. It's the nature of evil to self-destruct. You've got to get that. That's why it's so foolish to join and begin to embrace those values because they implode upon themselves. Look at chapter 17, verse 16 to 18. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute and they will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Evil is going to implode upon itself. That's why it's so foolish for us to embrace those values. Because it just, it implodes. You ever try to keep a lie? You ever try to keep it, 
keep it going, and you, you, you know how a lie just builds and builds and builds, and eventually you cr- you're crushed under the weight of I it. Mean, you can't keep a lie. The more people try to figure it out, the more you have to build it, and eventually it collapses on its own weight. And that, that, that's the way evil goes, but this side is destined to, to end at the victory of God. Look at verses 12 to 14 of chapter 17. It talks about the kings. They have one purpose. Verse 14, they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, His chosen, and His faithful followers. Back in 1712, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive power. Again in 1810, same, same thing. You probably heard that in the morning. Whoa, 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 great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. In verse 17, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. In verse 19, in one hour she's been brought to ruin. You see, this thing will implode upon itself, whereas the kingdom of the Lamb leads to the victory of God. And what the the revelation of Jesus really comes down to is a tale of two choices, two ideas to think about, And a question. That's what I'm going to leave you with. The first idea is this. This text makes it really clear. This idea of the indivisibility of faith and life. Now I didn't say the invisibility of faith and life. I said the indivisibility. You cannot separate what you believe from the way that you live. They go together. You can't separate that. And and somehow we've bought the lie that we can believe in Jesus here and yet not follow him in the way he lived. And and we do that sometimes by manufacturing a Jesus who leads us to power, who takes care of us, who brings us possessions. But, But we cannot separate, if we say we are the followers of the Lamb, it's going to be reflected in our life. It's going to be reflected in the political positions we're going to take. It's going to be reflected in the friendships we make. It's going to be reflected in how we spend our money, how we spend our time. You can't divide what you believe and how you live. James talked about faith and deeds in James chapter 2. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you've got faith, I've got deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. See, these two are inseparable. And, and the reality is, uh, if very often we, we think we believe one thing, but our actions say we believe something else. In Luke 6, Jesus said, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs on thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. See, we can't separate belief and life. And the reality, the the flip side of that is what you see in your life actually tells you what you really believe. It's not what you think you believe. That's one of the things I'm struggling with in this whole, these issues of race is, is I know what I think I believe, but I also see my actions. And I, I'm, I'm confronted to say, oh man, do they really, do, do, isn't this exposing something that I didn't even realize that I thought? We've got to look at our life. Life and belief are, are so enmeshed they will never be separated so if you look at your life and you see characteristics of this kingdom, you've got to say, what is it that I'm believing? That can't be true. Because if I believe 
in the Lamb, it's going to lead me in this direction. And that, that, the second idea I want to show to you is, is the subtle pull of Babylon. See, the challenge is we often drift into those patterns um, without even thinking about it. There's a story in, in Mark 8, 31 to 33. I use this all the time because it, maybe because it speaks to me. Remember when Jesus, I think the text will come up on the screen. I'm not going to read it all. But, but Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And then it says, Jesus begins to say, well, the Son of Man must suffer He's going to be rejected, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he will be killed. And Peter jumps up and says, no, that'll never happen to you, right? Never. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, Babylon is not, it's this subtle pull that Peter has. I want to follow you, Messiah, but I want you to be Messiah my way. It's very subtle. And Jesus calls him on it. You see, we... When we're confronted with the prostitute of Babylon, we never see the, the harlot on the beast. That's not, you know, nobody's going to pick that. How many of you are going to read that story of that woman and think, yes, that's where I want? Nobody does. We, but, but we see the, the good aspects. We see the positive image. And we get lulled into this life that is lived for material things. And when we see it going down, we mourn. We see the exploitation of workers in other countries and we're up, oh, it's so sad. But then when our prices go up, we complain. We see the planet struggling. Not so much now that we've slowed our traveling down, but we do see it struggling, but we continually drive our cars for these two-minute trips and complain about high gas prices. We see meth addicts on the street. We wish they'd just go somewhere else. I mean, what can we do? They, they might take our stuff. Right? Do you see that? We worry about the terrorists in the airport or on the metro or in the city bus, and we forget that the Greek word for the two thieves on either side of Jesus was terrorist. If you read the Greek, it says, and on either side of him was crucified a terrorist, and one of those terrorists, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. See, we, we, we forget. We get lulled into this complacency. We speak out and we post on Facebook about racism. But we build our lives and our relationships so that they're separated from people different from us. It gets, it's a little hairy when you start... See, it's a subtle pull, this, this pull of Babylon. It doesn't look like a great heart. It looks like the way we want to live our lives. And that's why Jesus says, come out of her. This is the way we've got to go, following the slain lamb. I, I wrestle with this. It's hard for me. How do I live as a follower of Jesus in a world that's hooked on power, possessions, and making a name for themselves? You see why they killed the followers of the Lamb? Because their lives stand in such stark contrast to the way the world lives. That's why they killed them. Their very obedience to the example of Jesus called into question the entire way of life for the rest of the world. And that's the question. Two ideas and a question. The question is this. In which city am I living? In which city am I living? What, what's my life look like? In Hebrews eleven sixteen. it talks about these heroes of the faith, and they had some messy lives. Don't, don't gloss that over. They, they messed up big time. But it says, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, Hebrews eleven sixteen. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What do our actions say about who and what is really important? What we really think is true. 
Have we come to terms with what Jesus means when he says, follow me? It means having relationships with those people. It means offering up this part of my life for them. See, the Bible is a tale of two ways of life, one centered on ourselves, one centered on Jesus, and every single day we choose. Now, one of the benefits of this pandemic has been we've had time to slow down a bit. I mean, I know there's lots of negatives that have come through it too, but, but I, I think we need to take time to reflect, to receive this as a gift and say, okay, God, you've given me some mental real estate, some space in my head where I can actually think about how am I living my life? What's it going? Am I pursuing this? Am I sacrificing my life and offering it up? You know, if, if you're here, which 30 of you are, some of you are watching, it most likely means you have chosen Zion. Nobody probably turned on the TV today or the Facebook, Facebook or YouTube because they really want to follow the great harlot of Babylon. That's where you are. You've been brought into the bride of the Lamb. You've made that choice. Now the question is, will you continually surrender your life to reflect that choice? Now, I'm not saying this to guilt us. I'm just saying if, if we see things on this side in our life, in this kingdom of Babylon, power, possessions, making a name for myself, taking care of myself, if we see that, the Spirit says that's going to implode upon itself. You want to come where there's actually life, where there's the victory of God. He wants you to live life and life abundantly, it says in John 10. He, he calls to you in the words of chapter 19, verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. God, we thank you for... I think we thank you for these images. They, they're fast and furious and overwhelming. Help us not to get lost in all the technical details. As even in that, we're just trying to control the text. Help us to, to come face to face with the reality of two kingdoms. Help us to see in our own lives where we're adopting values and beliefs and actions that flow from the kingdom of the dragon. And God, just as you lay down your life for us to welcome us, to be the bride of the Lamb, to, to, to bring us into your family, help us to lay down our desires and our life for you and for the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I still say the center of the whole book is Roman, or Revelation 12, verse 11. It says, they, this is how... We leave this and come here. They overcame him first by the blood of the lamb. That you realize the only way that you're ever going to get from there to there is by receiving the forgiveness of God. The blood of the lamb has brought you into this place by the word of their testimony. That You're not going to be ashamed of that. You're going to speak the story of the blood of the lamb covering you and bringing you here. And then you're not going to love your lives so much as to shrink from death. See, everything over here is about maintaining and controlling. And over here it's about they kill me, they kill me. They can't, really, I, I, I will lay down everything I need because I know that I've, I've already been, I've already been, I'm already part of the blood of the, I'm already part of the bride of the lamb. There's nothing that the world can do to me. And that's, that's, that was the message for, you know, I, I just realized, so oh, here he goes again. <laughs> you know, John is suffering. He's in prison on Patmos. I was talking with Pauline about that this week. He's not, it's not like he's, you know, at Club Med on Patmos looking over the water and he has this vision. He's working, doing whatever he's doing, mining rocks, or he's, he's being forced labor as an exile on this, on this island. He's suffering. 
And he's writing to the church that are dropping like flies because they're being killed because they keep saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And he's saying, look, guys, I know it looks like we're dying. and we're di- but, but the truth is, this is the kingdom that wins. And, and even as we die, that, that's where glory, that's where, that's where it's all going to be made new. This one's going to, so, uh, yeah, not another sermon. Sorry, that's next week. Um, I would just encourage you to, to receive the blood of the Lamb. Realize you're forgiven. Speak that out, the word of your testimony, and do not hold on to your life and what you want so much as to be afraid of death. Amen.